Now, many of us have stories about our grandparents or our parents or ourselves coming to Canada. Every, just about every Canadian has a story about coming to Canada, and that's one of the things I love about Hope Church is just hearing all of these different stories about how, how you came to Canada or how your parents came to Canada or your grandparents. In my case, it was my grandparents, uh, my, or my grandfather. My grandfather came from Scotland early in 1912, and he took a boat. And I often think what it was like for him early in 1912, taking a boat across the Atlantic Ocean. Here's why I wonder about that. Because midway through 1911, another boat tried to cross the Atlantic. The unsinkable boat. The boat that is, you know, infamously known as the Titanic, right? The The unsinkable ship had just sunk like seven months ago, and now my grandfather with his family is hopping on some crummy other boat, and they're going to cross the Atlantic. You know, the the Titanic is sort of the ultimate lesson of overconfidence. You know, you you read about the Titanic. You read about, oh, we, we we don't need all those lifeboats. We'll just have a half or the third of the necessary lifeboats because this thing will never sink. Navigation, smavigation. Who cares about icebergs? We're just going to go straight ahead. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. In fact, overconfidence. I mean, the Bible tells us pride comes before what? Not success, a fall. Pride comes before a fall. I remember listening on a radio program and they were talking about motor vehicle accidents, particularly accidents on motorcycles. And I thought this was going to be about, you know, a bunch of young kids on crotch rockets going up and down the 410, weaving through traffic. And they said the most fatalities in motorcycles is actually middle-aged men. Why is it? Well, because they go through their life and they have the sports car and they have the minivan and they have their family and then they decide, now I'm going to get a motorcycle. And then the person at the motorcycle store says, well, let me show you how to use it because there's a lot of power in this thing and it's, 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 it's not your Toyota Sienna, okay? So you, let me just show you how, and they're like, come on, I've been driving a car for years, I've seen a couple movies, here we go. And it's the overconfidence that leads to fatality, Lifeguards at the ocean often testify that it's the strong swimmers who, who, who end up drowning because they think they can go out so far and they don't think about riptide and they don't think about currents. They're overconfident. That's such a danger. And that was a danger that the Apostle Paul saw among the people in Corinth that they had this pride about them, this, this overconfidence, this confidence that led some of them to walk right into an idol temple and to eat food, sacrificed idols, to participate in the worship of idols. The overconfidence caused them to do that. And Paul understood that pride and presumption is the enemy of perseverance. That when we invite pride and presumption in our life, when we're overconfident, then we are most likely to fail, most likely not to persevere. 
So right in the middle of this passage that Nitha read to us, Paul said, take heed lest you fall. That's the title for today's message. Take heed lest you fall. This is a message warning about the dangers of overconfidence, having a false sense of security. And we're going to learn that there's three ways to protect ourselves from a presumption. Uh, let me pray for us before we uh, d- jump in here. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you. It's so good to be together. It's so good to, to come and not have to uh, ask people to sit in, in one row but not in another. It, it's so nice for people just to come and, and to decide, well, I'm going to come to the 9 o'clock even though I didn't sign up. But, uh, we're so thankful to, uh, to be together. Uh, we're so thankful for the beautiful sunshine this morning, the warm weather, Lord. These are just all small evidences of your kindness and your good, goodness to us. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken. And we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We thank you for what you have been teaching us as we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We pray for your help as we uh, dive into these uh, 22 verses and try to feast on your word, to metabolize it, to apply it into our own lives. That's going to take some work today, Lord. We're going to have to put our thinking caps on. We're going to have to study hard. We're going to have to think clearly. But Lord, ultimately, we are completely dependent on your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text which you inspired Paul to write. So Lord, we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into the specifics of these 22 verses, let's just review the flow of thought that Paul is following from chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10. The Corinthians had written Paul a letter. They had asked a question about about sexuality and marriage. They also had a question about what, what about food sacrifice to idols. So Paul introduces the topic, and he begins by talking about idols and food. And then he talks about knowledge and love. That knowledge puffs up, but love is what we should be focused on because love builds up. And then he talked about the conscience. He began by saying, when you consider if you should eat or not eat, go to this place or not go to this place, consider how that might affect someone in your church family who might have a weaker conscience. Then he goes into the illustration in chapter uh, 9, verses 1 to 27, where Paul uses his own uh, example, where he talks about the fact that he didn't raise any support, and then he used the image of an athlete and self-discipline. And now we're jumping into chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 13, and his second illustration, and leading into his first application point in verses 14 to 22. Now, he began by addressing the issue of food offered to idols. But for like two chapters, he hasn't mentioned food or idols. (laughs) He's been talking about raising a salary. He's been talking about sports. He's been talking about conscience. Nothing. It doesn't seem like he's answering the question. And even as Nathan was reading today, you're like, when is he ever going to get to the part about the food offered to idols? Well, this is it. Look at all the references to food and to idols in this text. Spiritual food, spiritual drink, eat and drink, cup, bread, eat food, drink, table. And then do not be idolaters, flee from idolatry. And then idols are mentioned in, in verses 19 through, uh, through 22. So now Paul is really, he's going he's to hit them with their first application point as it relates to food offered to idols. But before he gets there, he wants to deal with this this issue of overconfidence, which, which is at the heart of what was wrong with the church at Corinth. They were puffed up. They thought they were something. They thought they were smart. They thought they were spiritual. They thought they were wise. 
And going all the way back to chapter 1, Paul has been trying to cut them down to size. The wisdom of the world, that's nothing. What about the wisdom of God? And, and you're all puffed up, but, but you, you've got someone in your church who's sleeping with their mother-in-law. How can you be puffed up and proud about that? So he's been cutting them down to size point by point, and now he's, he's really going to address this issue of overconfidence. So three ways to protect ourselves from presumption. Here's the first one, to learn from history. To learn from history. Paul is inviting the brothers to look back. Loved ones, we need to do this as well. We sometimes think that our problems, the temptations that we're facing, the challenges that we're up against as a culture, we so often just think that this is something new. And so we need new answers and new ideas. And the church at Corinth was like that too. We're a, we're a modern city. And we don't need to pay attention to it. Paul's saying, no, remember. Remember history. People haven't really changed fundamentally. We might have become more sophisticated in how we sin, but fundamentally, we're still the same, and there's so many lessons that we can learn from history. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 10 begins with the word for, which is linking to what Paul had just said. Remember, he said, I want to be an athlete. I don't want to be disqualified. I want to win the prize. But he just finished off by saying, I don't want to be disqualified in chapter 927. Now he's linking that. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Paul here is, is calling the, his fellow Christians in Corinth, he calls them brothers. And then he says, our fathers. Who is he talking about? Who was it that went through the sea? Who was it that was under the cloud? It's the people of Israel. So here's the remarkable thing. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, a predominantly non-Jewish church. They were, they were mostly Gentiles. They had a few Jewish Christians as part of the church. But look what he says. He says, our fathers. This is what's so remarkable about the way Paul thinks about ethnicity, the way that Paul thinks about history. Because earlier in chapter 9, remember Paul says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. So it's like Paul doesn't really identify primarily as Jewish. He has to become a Jew. And now he's telling the people who clearly aren't Jewish that the people of Israel were their fathers. That they've been, because they're in Christ, they have been grafted in so that the promises and the blessings that were promised to the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, are, are now available to the people of God, the church, that God is doing a new thing. So he says they, they are our fathers. And then he says that they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Look at verse two. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Notice the repetition of all. Paul is describing this one large group and they had these common experiences. They passed through the sea. They were under the cloud. They ate the food. They drank the drink. They all did it. All went under the cloud. All through the sea. All ate the food. All drank the drink. What does he mean when he says that they all passed under the cloud in verse one? 
Well, when the people of Israel were becoming the people of Israel, when God was rescuing them and redeeming them from slavery in Egypt and leading them out, he led them by a pillar of cloud. He's referring to Exodus chapter 13. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day or by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So the people were under this cloud that was leading them so that they could travel at any time and they always knew which direction to go in. It also says that they all passed through the sea. Remember that cloud led them not on the direct route to the wilderness. It actually led them right in. They got backed into a corner up against the Red Sea. And oh no, here comes Egypt and all of their army. But they passed through the sea. Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, which God commanded him to do. And the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. They were all under the cloud, and the cloud led them to go through the sea. That's what Paul is describing here. But then look at what he says in verse 2. He shows a connection between the experience of the people of God being rescued from Egypt and the experience of the people of God who have been rescued from sin. In verse 2, he says, and all were, look at the word he says, all were baptized. They were baptized into Moses, and they were baptized in two different ways, in the cloud and in the sea. They, they equated with Moses as their leader that, that the Red Sea was like a baptism, and the cloud itself was like a baptism. And we as Christians, we, we have a baptism, don't we? First and foremost, when we, when we become Christians, just like the baptism of the cloud, we, we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes and dwells us. Just like the cloud led the people, now the Spirit leads us. We're baptized into the Spirit. And then to visualize the spiritual reality of the, of the Spirit's baptism, we have water baptism. So we're baptized in the water to symbolize the baptism of the Spirit the people of God in Old Testament Israel had a similar experience. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. We're baptized into Christ in the Holy Spirit and in the waters of baptism. Then he says in verse 3, And all ate the same food and all drank the same drink. Just as Christians have a baptism of the Spirit and baptism with water, that's, that's how you become the people of God. Then, when, remember, when the people of God were going on their journey, they ate food provided for by God. They drank drink provided for by God. Just like we, later today, we're going to take food, spiritual food, and spiritual drink that God has provided. So what Paul is doing is he's taking the, the, the ordinances of the church, baptism and communion, and he's saying Old Testament Israel went, went through a similar experience. They had a community-forming experience like baptism. Like, this is the way in. No one got to the promised land unless they went through the Red Sea. And so you, you must be born again if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. You must have the cloud of the Spirit. And you symbolize that by being baptized. That's entrance into the kingdom of God. And then the ongoing, the people kept eating. 
And the people kept drinking. And so we continued to meet together to eat and to drink. They didn't go through the Red Sea time and time again. That was like a one-time experience. But they ate and they drank over and over again. Baptism is a one-time moment to say, I'm a part of the people of God. And communion is something that we do regularly to show that uh, God is our God. Now, what, what did they eat? What, what, this is described in, in Exodus chapter 16. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. The people looked at this thing, this, this bread, and it was sort of like crusty, uh, frosted flakes on the, on the ground, and they're like, what is it? And the Hebrew word or phrase for what is it is manna. They all said, manna, manna, what is it? So that's what they called it. They called it, whatchamacallit. They, they called it manna. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable uh, land. It's bread from heaven. Who is our bread from heaven? Jesus. And so Jesus, is the, the, he's the ultimate manna, the ultimate fulfillment of what happened in Exodus chapter 16. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. In Exodus chapter 17, the Lord said to Moses, so the people were grumbling against Moses. They were, they were ready to stone him and, and go back to Egypt. And Moses cries out to God and God says, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So God not only provided supernatural bread, he also provided supernatural water. And just as the Christ is the true bread from heaven, look at verse 4. It says, all drank from the same spiritual drink, so they drank, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And then it says, and the rock was Christ. Moses had to strike the rock. Violence was done to the rock. And because violence was done to the rock, life came forth. Christ is the rock. Violence was done to Christ. He was crucified, and in his death, Life came to us, spiritual drink. There is life in the blood of Christ, life in his death. That, that's why we take the cup in our hands and we remember his blood that was shed, the violence that was done to him, the death that he died in order to give us life. You see, God's word speaks in patterns and in pictures. And Paul here is, is giving us a, a, an insight into how all of the Old Testament points to Christ. Remember, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was with those disciples, and their hearts burned within them. Why? Because he, he opened to them the Scriptures, and he started where? With Moses, all the way to the, to the prophets, and showed who, how all of the Old Testament pointed towards him. And Paul gives an example of that. The rock was Christ. But then here comes the warning. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul said, just, just remember, remember those stories. But remember that that entire generation, except for two people, that entire generation, who they were all baptized, they all drank the food, Sorry, they all ate the food. They all drank the drink. But they didn't get there. They didn't make it to 
the promised land. And this is a stern warning to all of us who think, well, because I'm in church today, I'm going to heaven. Because I prayed a prayer at some evangelistic event or at a summer camp years and years ago, I, I have my ticket to heaven. Because I serve in church, because I've been baptized, because I practice the, the Lord's Supper, I, I'm guaranteed I must be going to heaven. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things are unimportant. They're all very important. But all of those things are external things. And what Paul is saying is, hey, you might think that just because you're doing all of these external things that somehow you can have confidence. Well, your confidence cannot be in the symbols. Your confidence must be in what the symbols point to. Your confidence must be in Christ, faith in Christ, not pride and arrogance and overconfident, but humble and desperately dependent on our Savior. They were all overthrown in the wilderness. This is the warning that Paul gives. Then he says in verse six, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That word examples, the Greek word there is typos. This is when you get into studying uh, the Bible and how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, you'll be introduced to this term called typology, which is the idea that God and people tend to follow similar patterns, that history does, in fact, repeat itself. You know you have, like, a cousin or an aunt, and, like, at every uh, a birthday party or every family get-together, you can always count on them to, you know, to do something, right? To start singing a song spontaneously or, or laughing really loudly or doing the dishes to clean up. And when you see the family member do that, what do you say? You say, that's so typical, Right? That's so typical of that person. That's such a type. It's such a pattern. We can predict that this person acts this way because we've seen a pattern over time. It's, it's typical. That, that's typology. That God, because he's unchanging, although he, he is always working in new ways, he's always following a pattern. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is why we need to study history is because people never really change. And even though the Corinthians were hundreds of years, they, they were looking at the people of Israel like ancient history, there were things that the people of Israel did that were typical of all people. There were patterns. And the Corinthians would, would be very foolish to think that they had nothing to learn from history. And we would be even more foolish because for us, I mean, the Corinthians are ancient history. I mean, for us, the mid-1990s is ancient history. We would be foolish to not recognize what's typical five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. Paul says these things were written down as examples, as typos, to show us what's typical and then in verses 7 through 9, you notice that Paul, he says, do not. And then in verse 8, we must not. Then in verse 9, we must not. And then in verse 10, nor. He gives four prohibitions. Do not, we must not, we must not. And then one more thing, nor should we do this. And then he repeats this one phrase. You can see it in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. It says, as some of them did. He says, do not as some of them did. Do not, 
as some of them did. We must not, as some of them did. That, and what Paul is saying is that the temptations that we are facing today are the same temptations that the people of Israel faced back then. Here's uh, the first uh, temptation. And in case you're wondering, is this going to be a three-hour sermon? The first point is really long, okay? So we got a few more minutes to go on this point, and then second and uh, third uh, will come uh, quite quickly. But we're already down uh, in verse, uh, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Then it says, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. At Mount Sinai, when God was giving the law, Moses was up there for 40 days. God had already thundered down. He had spoken the Ten Commandments for all of them to hear. What was the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And while they're waiting, and they've got some things to think about, they've got Ten Commandments that they can kind of process. Moses is getting the rest of the details. But while they are waiting for Moses, what do they do? They break command number one. They commit adultery on the honeymoon. They become idolaters. They carve for themselves a golden image. In Exodus chapter 32, it says, Exodus 32, there we go. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods. No, look, they're in a hurry. What are you doing sitting around? Get up, make us gods who shall go, hurry up, we gotta break the first commandment. This is an emergency, we need to break the law. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them uh, to Aaron. The story goes on in the next verse, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf, and they said, these are your gods, plural, O oh, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What? These golden calves, did, they didn't do anything. They, in fact, where did they get all the gold from? How do a bunch of slaves end up with gold? Well, remember in the Exodus story, God told the Israelites to ask their Egyptian slave masters for gold. These people were, you know, they're covered in boils and there's frogs in their bed and all their livestock is dead and, and the Israelites are over here in Gershom and nothing's happening to them and then they're just like, hey, by the way, while we're leaving, can I have your necklace? Now, why on earth? This is one of the strangest miracles in the Old Testament. The miracle that the Egyptians were like, sure, yeah, here, take it. Here, actually, this ring goes with it. My grandmother gave it to me, but here, you can have it. It was so bizarre. And then they used the gifts of God. This is what idolatry is. We use the gifts of God, and rather than worshiping and giving thanks to God, we start to worship the gift. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we shall feast to the Lord. So somehow they have these new gods, but they're still, again, we always think, well, I can have this God, and I can still be true to the Lord. Tomorrow I'm gonna serve the Lord. Today I'm gonna serve this idol. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And then it says, and the people sat down to eat and drink. Again, all of these stories, or most of them, refer to eating and drinking, which Paul is trying to make a connection. Food is not as neutral as you think it is, Corinthians. They began to eat and drink, and then it says they rose up to play. Now, they weren't playing softball, okay? This wasn't frisbee tag. This is a euphemism for what Paul uh, is going to address Next, look at verse seven, or sorry, look at verse eight. 
we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. This is the next lesson from Israel, from, from history. Israel, the history of Israel. Israel, I just created a, the 11 o'clock's not gonna get that kind of insight, you know? <laughs> you only get this on the first run through at nine o'clock. You, you learn words like Israel. Verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is referring to a story uh, in Numbers chapter 25 when the, the people of God are in Moab and uh, Balak, the king of uh, Moab, has asked a prophet, a false prophet named Balaam to come and to curse the people of God. Balaam doesn't really want to go and Balak you know, persists and then eventually Balaam decides to go and then his donkey starts talking to him. The story is a trip, I'm telling you. Balaam wants to curse the people of God, but every time he opens his mouth, he can't do anything but bless the people of God. The whole thing backfires. So then the king of Moab is like, I don't know what to do. I mean, I got the pro, I tried to do it the spiritual way. So then what is it? So then this is what he does in Numbers chapter 25, verse one. He sends in the women to seduce the people of God. When Israel lived in Shittim, the, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They started to engage in sexual immorality. They were lured. And then it says, these invited the people to sacrifices to their gods. Notice, and the people ate. There was eating involved. And they bowed down to their gods. They were lured in with the sexual temptation, which led to sacrifices to idols and to eating so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Baal is, is a false god. Then it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now Paul says 23,000 died. Now, we don't really know why Paul wrote, wrote a different number. I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, numbers in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are just kind of rounded up or down. It wasn't important to Paul. It shouldn't be important to us. The, the main message here is whether it was 24,000 or 23,000 is that there's consequences for when we rebel against God and that we need to be on the lookout against sexual immorality. Now remember, this was a big problem for the church at Corinth. There was the guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. In chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, there was those guys who were regularly going to prostitutes thinking, well, food is for the body and, and, and food is for the stomach and, and sex is the same thing. It doesn't really matter what I do with my body. And Paul says, no, your, your body and your spirit are connected. Your body is going to be resurrected. So sexual immorality was a huge problem in Corinth. And Paul is saying, we, we can't be like them. We, we need to learn the lesson. It's typical. There's a pattern. You're being tempted in the same way the people of God will be tempted, and God will judge you the same way he judged them. There's a typical way that the people tend to act, and there's a typical way that God acts. And so Paul is saying, wake up. We, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Then verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is a story in Numbers chapter 21 where the people of God were grumbling against Moses. The people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Now that's incoherent. There's no food, but we loathe this food. So is there food or there is food? 
It's kind of like the teenager who opens the fridge and says, there's nothing to eat, right? But they, were, they, they, grew, they grew tired of the manna. They had, they had lost sight of the fact that there was this daily miracle in their lives. They were ungrateful. God always gave them food to eat. He always gave them water to drink. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among them so that many people of Israel died. This is the story. And then the bronze serpent is made. The people end up getting saved. Jesus mentions this story in John chapter 3. Really, the Old Testament is just its a key that unlocks our understanding of the New Testament. But they tested the Lord. They were ungrateful. They thought that they were the ones who should be in control, who should set, this is what should be on the menu. God, what you're feeding us isn't good. It's worthless. We, wanna, we want what we want, and we want it now. And again, the consequence is the same. Fiery serpents came. A plague came. These, that our sins have consequences. And then the last example in verse 10, nor grumble. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is Numbers 14. Anyone who thinks the book of Numbers is a boring book, you just obviously haven't read it. Like all of these incredible stories are all taken from the book of Numbers. It says the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. This is when the spies were sent into Canaan. They they made excellent time initially. They were at the border of the promised land. They could have gone right in. And they sent in these spies, remember? And 10 of them gave a bad report, and only Caleb and Joshua gave the positive report, and the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. They would have rather be dead in Egypt than alive and free. They were so disoriented. They had so lost track of what truly mattered. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back. We, we want a new leader. We want the power. We're tired of listening to Moses. We're tired of listening to God. We want to be in charge. And this is how God responds in Numbers 14, verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned, because God was going to wipe them all out. Moses interceded on their behalf. Again, a picture of Christ. It says, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live... And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have, I, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. They didn't get into the promised land. God protected and preserved them for those 40 years, but they were destroyed. They did not make it to the promised land because they grumbled against the Lord. These are all patterns. We all have a tendency towards idolatry. In every one of us, we tend to take the good gifts of God. Rather than giving thanks to God, we start to give praise to the gifts. We all have a tendency to grumble and to complain. We all have a a tendency to take God's good gift of sexuality and to distort it like they did with the Moabite women. These are all patterns of, of what it's like to be human, the temptations that all of us face. But we need to remember that humans work in patterns and God works in patterns. That if we fool around with idolatry or with grumbling or wanting the power for ourselves or engaging in sexual immorality, we are inviting God to work according to his regular pattern, 
which is to judge those kinds of sins. Verse 11 says, Now these things happen to them as an example, as a typos, to show us what's typical, but they were written down for our instruction. Are we going to learn from history on whom the end of the ages has come? Paul knew that they were living in the end times. Some people ask me, hey, Ted, do you think with everything that's happening in the world right now that we're living in the end times? I say, absolutely. And we were living in the end times in the 90s, and we were living in the end times in the 80s. We were living in the end times and, you know, during the Reformation. We're living in the end times when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. These are the end times. Christ has come once. The Spirit has been sent. All we're waiting for is for him to come back. This is the end. We're living in the end. And these things were all written. All these Old Testament stories were written for our instruction. All of these examples of sin and judgment were written for us because we live at the end times. So that we could be aware because, listen, end times means end judgment. That our judgment that's coming is final. So all of these other examples were written for us so that we, to whom uh, we're living in the end times where there will be a final judgment, that we would wake up and not be overconfident that, oh, I go to church all the time, or I've been baptized, or I take communion, and so everything's fine. It doesn't matter how I live my life. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, we got to wake up. Paul then says in verse 12, here's the title for our message, therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. This is our second point, that if we're going to learn from, uh, from the, the Old Testament, if we are going to protect ourselves from presumption, we've got to learn from history, and secondly, we've got to flee from idolatry. We've got to flee from idolatry. Verse 13 is one of my favorite verses. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Some of us are listening right now, we're thinking, this, I still can't really make this fit to my life. I've never wanted to make a, a statue out of gold of a farm animal and bow down to it. That's just not something I'm tempted to do. And if a Moabite woman tried to put the moves on me, I'm just, I'm sorry. That's just, I, I don't really regularly feel tempted in that kind of sexual, those kind of sexual sins. And, and food is not a big deal for me and I, I'm quite content. So you might be thinking that none of these stories actually apply to my life. But Paul says no temptation is, is not common to humankind. That we all face the different, we all face different kinds of temptations, but they're all similar. They all have something in common. They, they are all typical. Someone sitting in this section might be tempted in a way that's totally different from sit, someone sitting over here in this section. There could be married couples or parents and children, uh, friends, and the person sitting beside you has never been tempted in, in a single way in, in an area that you feel tempted to sin every moment of every day. But he says here that no temptation has seized you that is not, that is not common to man. Let, let me show you how this actually works. On the, on the top here. This is just a list of random sins that any of us could be struggling with at any time. Gossip, anger, impatience, boasting, substance abuse, stealing, pornography, arrogance, lying, sexual sin, bitterness. Some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, I've never, I've never felt tempted in some of those areas, but there's probably one or two things that you do feel tempted 
in regularly. And again, this list could go on and on and on. And so often in our Christian life, we just focus on the top box. If I could just stop gossiping, if I could just get my substance abuse problem under control, if I could just stop being so bitter and learn how to forgive, we just think in the top box. But no temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man. What do all of these have in common? If you break down all of these temptations at the very core, and if you break down all of the different sins that the people struggled with in the wilderness, they they had one of four of these things in common. It was either a desire for power, a desire for possessions, a desire for people, and ultimately a desire for pleasure. Someone is bitter because there's, something's gone wrong with a person, and we want that person to pay. We want to actually have, it, it's a power problem. They seem like they're getting off fine, and their life is going on so well, even though they hurt us so profoundly. But we think, if I can still hold this grudge, then I have some sort of control. Or, or uh, possessions. Why do people steal? Because they want the stuff. Why do people work too much and neglect their family? Because they, they want the bigger car or the flatter screen TV or whatever it happens to be. We're focused on possessions. Why do we want possession? So often we want possession just so we can impress people. We think that if I wear the right clothes or drive up in the right car, that people will think I'm cool, people will think I'm special. Or if I compromise with my uh, standards for sexuality, or if I join my friends in abusing a substance, then I'll get connected to these people. It all comes down to people. And at the end of the day, all of us just want to feel good. We like it when people smile at us. We like, it feels good when we have power, when we're in control. There are certain possessions that for a time make us feel good when we acquire them. So whatever sin, whatever temptation you might be facing, it's common to all of us because it breaks down into one of these categories. And these things are the idols in our lives. Gossip is not the idol, but people thinking that we know a lot That's the idol, wanting to impress people or wanting to control the situation and have power by playing this person against this person. It's about power. The possessions, I've got to have that. It becomes an idol. I'll work too much or I'll steal. I'll be dishonest so that I can have those things. Whatever you sin in order to get, that becomes your idol. But then if you were to distill it down even more from, from power and possessions and people and pleasure, at the end of the day, every human being on planet Earth is looking for two things, satisfaction and security. Every sin, if you follow it down to its root right in yourself, in your sinful flesh, it's all about satisfaction and security. The essence of idolatry, the essence of temptation, is when we take that which only God can do for us and we expect power, a possession, people, or a feeling of pleasure to do that for us. When we turn away from finding all of our satisfaction and all of our security in God, and we try to put our satisfaction and security in something else. So no temptation that has overtaken us is not common. We all struggle, and this is why we can learn to not just sympathize with people who struggle with sins that we don't struggle with. We can actually learn to empathize if we follow where the sin is coming from, where idolatry is truly rooted. Then I love this. So we we have this good news. Here's the pattern. We all struggle. We all struggle in the same way. There's the pattern. But here's the pattern about who God is. God is faithful. 
And then listen to the good news. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That there's no temptation. There, it's, God never puts us in a lose-lose situation. There is always an opportunity to win and to find victory. And he says, with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. You can always stop the conversation. You can always close the the shopping website or the pornography website or whatever it is that is luring you in. You you can always turn things off. There's always a way out. There's always a way of escape. And it says in verse 14, therefore, since there is a way of escape, when you find it, Run for it. Flee from idolatry in verse 14. Make a run. God always provides that way out, so we've got to flee from idolatry. Don't hang around. Don't linger in the idol's temple. Don't even go into the idol's temple. Flee from idolatry. Idolatry was listed in the sin list of chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. It was a big problem in Corinth and loved ones. It's a big problem in Brampton and Mississauga and Milton and Orangeville and Georgetown. It might look a little bit different. No one's bowing before statues. But there's a lot that is happening that is controlling where we're trying to find satisfaction and security in something other than God. So flee from idolatry. Where do we run? We run to the only one who can give us satisfaction and security. We run to the Lord. So, if we're going to persevere and not be presumptuous, we've got to learn from history. We've got to flee from idolatry. And then thirdly, we've got to pursue undivided loyalty. We've got to pursue undivided loyalty. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Paul says, listen, just think about this for a second, okay? I'm just reasoning with you. Let's just use logic to try to unpack what is happening in your church with these people who are worshiping at idol temples and saying that it's nothing. You think that food is neutral and that it has no meaning and that everything is permissible, But Paul says, well, let's just think about that for a minute. Verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup and the bread. Paul is talking to the church now about communion. That word participation in verse 18 is the Greek word koinonia, which we use a lot. The Latin translation of koinonia is communio, where we get our word communion from. The reason why we call the Lord's Supper communion is because of this verse. It is a participation. It is a koinonia. It is a communio. It's a communion with one another, but also with the living God. What is Paul getting at here? He's saying... So you're telling me that food is neutral and that it doesn't matter where we eat or how we eat it, and yet you're a Christian. You know that when we gather on the Lord's day and take the bread and the cup, that cup is not neutral. That bread is not meaningless. It's infused with meaning, not in like some Roman Catholic sacramental way, but the symbol 
means something. That's not just food in that moment. That food symbolizes something important. And that food is a means by which we koinonia. We participate. We commune with one another and most importantly with the living God. So Paul says, think about it. Don't tell me that you can go into an idol's temple and say that the food means nothing, it's just food, when on Sunday you gather with the Lord's people because that food's not just food. Do you follow the logic? Paul is saying, think about it. Then he says in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And so the bread is a symbol of our unity It's not just a symbol of the body of Christ in that Christ who came and dwelled incarnate, the word became flesh, John chapter one. The bread does communicate the body of Christ in that way, but the bread also communicates the body of Christ in that we are all together, baked into one loaf. And so when some Christians are harming the consciences of other Christians and dividing the church, they're not acting as one bread. They're acting as a little crumb over here that's been broken off and thinking that they're so great and that they're so big. Paul said, no, we're one body. We're one loaf, one bread. Then he says in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Another history lesson. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altars? There's that word participant again. This is a noun instead of a verb, but it's the same root, koinonia, communio. That in the Old Testament, there was something called a peace offering. A lot of the offerings at the temple, the tabernacle, you know, you gave the animal, the whole thing just got burned up. Maybe the priest got a little bit of it. But there was a peace offering where some of the meat actually came back to you. And as as it's burning on the altar, you're also eating it, that you are sitting down for a meal with the living God. That's what the peace offering was about. That my sins are forgiven and that now I'm just, I'm, I'm having fellowship. I'm having koinonia with God. So Paul says, just think about it. Think about our contemporary Lord's Supper. And then think about the Old Testament sacrifices. You can't say that food is meaningless and that it's completely neutral. Now Paul is going to bring it home in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He says No. No, it's not. He says, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants, koinonia, communio, communion. I don't want you to have communion with demons. So Paul's been playing like a card game with the people of Corinth. And they lay down their card saying, you know what? Anyone should be able to eat any food at any place at any time. And then Paul just very slowly plays the card of conscience and the weaker brother and says, don't you care? Don't you care that people are really troubled about that? And as the people are first reading it, they're like, that's all he's got? All he's got is just like be sensitive to the needs of others? And then Paul plays another card, like consider my example. I don't collect a salary. I don't take with me a believing wife. He plays that card as well. And then he slowly 
pulls out the next card. He says, well, think about athletes and how they discipline themselves. Can't you discipline yourself to not eat anywhere you want at any time? Can't you have any self-control in your life? Think about athletes. Then he lays down the card of, think about Old Testament Israel. You're, you're going into temples. That Idolatry never turns out well for the people of God. Why do you think it's going to turn out well for you? And then lastly, he's going to pull out the trump card. You ever play like Uno or Dutch Bliss or something like that, and you have the last card, and it's sort of there on your hand, and what do you do? You pour it, go up, and you go, bam, right? And that's what Paul is, he's going to give them their bam! You who know so much. You who think that idols are nothing. Here's his bam. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is written by Moses. So this has been known as, as long as the story of pagan idolatry in the wilderness has been known. This story has been known. This truth has been known. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. Notice, they sacrificed to demons who were no gods. Idols are not real. False gods are not real. But Satan and his demons are. And they're behind all false religion. And it's not something to be trifled with. Bam! And he warns them not to provoke the Lord to jealousy. That was the whole reason why God gave the command about not making idols. He says, because I am a jealous God in Exodus chapter 20. So where, where's your loyalty? You think that you're being loyal to Christ, but you're going to these idol temples. You can't have communion. You can't have participation. They cancel one another out. You're either with Christ at his table or you're with demons at their table table. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. You got to choose. Like Elijah told uh, the people of God in 1 Kings chapter uh, 18, this is what he said to them. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. You, got, you can't have it both ways. And then he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Verse 22, are we stronger than he? He's talking to the people that were, you know, the weak Christians and they have a weak conscience and we have all of the knowledge and we're strong, we're strong. I'm so strong, I can go right into an idol temple. I know it means that it's nothing. Oh, you think you're strong? You think you're so strong because you're not concerned about the weak people? Are you stronger than the Lord? Because the Lord's been pretty clear about this. so overconfident, so sure that they were right, so sure that they were more right than God, that they were more strong than God. Loved ones, when we, when we come on a regular basis as a church family, as we, as we come to the table, as we take the cup, as we take the bread, this is, this is a reminder that we are not strong that we did not have the power to save ourselves and we do not have the power to sanctify ourselves. God is the one who is strong and we are the ones who are weak. We are the ones who are guilty of idolatry and all of its complicated and camouflaged ways that it comes at us. We come to this table and we thank Christ for his body and for his blood and we remember that he suffered and died for all of the times, past, present, and future, where we've sought satisfaction and security, 
protection and pleasure from God's gifts rather than from God. So this is a time for us, loved ones, to quietly think and to pray, to, to, to prepare ourselves for uh, the Lord's uh, Supper. So let's do that now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons of history. Um, we pray, Lord God, that you would protect us from presumption, that you would protect us from pride. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would be uh, guiding us right now by your spirit. Lord, we want to be participants. We want to participate. We want to commune with you, to have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. We pray that as Pastor Chris comes forward now, Lord, that you would meet with us and be with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.